Om Vande Muralitharam Mukam Karoti Vachalam Pangum Langayate Girim Yat Kripatamahang Vande Krishna Paramananda Madhavam I salute the player of the flute, the all-blissful Madhava, Sri Krishna, by whose grace crippled can cross mountain and the mute become eloquent. Our subject this morning is do not react. The art of non-reaction. Everyone tells us, oh, don't react, just don't react. But is it so easy? If the occasion is pleasant, something has been ni- something nice has been said to us. Well, we may be able to control our reactions, not become overrelated. But if something very unpleasant has taken place, a criticism or a misfortune, are we able not to react? We have to ask ourselves that. Of course, I don't mean that we're never to react. After all, if the child puts his hand in the fire uh, and doesn't react, that will be a tragedy. And we have to learn to react to things which hurt us. If you go towards the edge of the apartment roof where you live, if you go up on the roof and go to the edge of the apartment, Roof and uh, don't feel like you're going to fall over, that would be too bad. <laughs> you have to react to the signals that come to you, and we all have to do that. The signals that come to us warn us of danger. The question is, how do we succeed in not reacting when reaction is inappropriate? So what do we mean by non-reacting? Well, we mean that we are to prevent harmful reactions, reactions which cripple our mind, which are inimical to our spiritual life. There are many. I can be a mess of sensitivity to all that comes around me, everything that happens to me if I'm not careful. One reaction, of course, is to cover oneself with a cloak and just shrink inside and not respond to my environment. That is not appropriate either. We have to be able to respond when responding is appropriate and to be able not to respond when we shouldn't be responding. We have to learn to avoid hating, taking revenge. When insulted or injured, knowing how to handle it, to absorb it, or to respond. By the way, uh, don't ask me to demonstrate this art. (laughs) I am no better at it than you are, but... uh, uh, I have to talk about it, so. uh. (laughs) 
We know many varieties of physical power. One of our teachers, one of my teachers, said that there were three kinds of power in the human nature, in human beings. The power to act. You all know what that is. We all want to do that. We all love to act. We want to do things. When I was in Atlanta, people were always coming to me and asking me, well, well, you talk such wonderful high philosophical principles, and you talk this, this, this great philosophy, uh, but what should I do? What, what can I do? How do I handle my spiritual life? What, what, what exactly should I do under each situation? And it was very important for me to reply in this way. What we do and how we do it is the result of how we think. It's the result of our philosophy of life. And until we can learn to think straight and to think appropriately and properly spiritually, we don't know how to act. Even if I gave you a list of ethical and moral rules, would you be able to do them? Would we be able to do them if we do not have basic orientation towards truth and righteousness? So, I like to get people into the mood of thinking straight, and I believe that action will follow in accordance with that. One of my teachers said that there are three kinds of power, as I said, and the first is this power of acting. The Western world wants to act. That is what, that is our mania. We want to do. We want to accomplish. We want to move ahead. We want to strike out. We want to be able to look back and say, I achieved this, or I achieved that. But you know, the power to act is the weakest, the least of the three powers that we have. The power to resist is greater than the power to act. Action comes almost from conditioned reflexes. But the power to resist comes from control of the mind. To be able not to react is a greater power. To be able to hold back is a greater power than to be able to act. Accomplishment and achievements fascinate us in the West. Natural impulse, the natural forces of our body brought under control, our body, our mind, our senses, demonstrates a power which is superior and higher to the power to act. We have to pull back on the reins. I'm sure you remember that illustration in the Katvapanishad, the illustration of the chariot, this being of ours, this corporal being, is likened to a rider in a chariot, or rather to the chariot, with its 
charioteer and the horses riding on the roads. The analogy is given like this, if you remember. The roads are the sense objects. The horses are the senses, the five senses. This is a chariot with five senses riding on the road, the sense objects. And the charioteer who is controlling them is the buddhi, the intellect of man. I just go that far for now. The chariot is the body. If the mind, the reins, are not held tight, if they're allowed to be loose, and the horses can pull in all directions, what hope is there for the guidance of that chariot? We have the power fortunately, and the position to be controllers of the chariot. We have buddhi, we have intellect, we have intelligence. So if we can resist, if we cannot react to all the advertisements that are thrown at us on TV, on the billboards, on the radio, in the movies, everywhere that we go, in all the entertainments that we seek, if we can resist the pull of these ads and the demands and solicitations of other people which are not willing, which we are not willing to accede to, that is a greater power, a much greater power than the power just to do and act and accomplish. And what do you think is the highest power, the third one? That's the power to be. Just be. Well, you say, that's no power at all. What do you mean by the power to be? I can can be, I am. No, it means the power to be still. Silent, indrawn, neither acting nor needing to act, neither resisting nor needing to resist, just being. Yes, in a way, it's no power because power is something which shows action, which demonstrates, and yet. You see, in order to be in that position, one has to be a person of tremendous power. Well, this morning, I I won't talk about that any longer. I will not try to convince you that the highest power we have is the power to just exist, just to be ourselves. But you know, that's another subject. That's Advaita. We can go on into that, but that's not today's topic. This morning, we're talking about the power to resist, the middle power. In Sanskrit, it is called uparati, withdraw. It's one of the six treasures of the spiritual path, highly celebrated six treasures. Uparati, pulling in, withdrawing, Checking, 
the mind checking, not meeting the stimuli that are coming to it from outside. And why is this important for us spiritually? Why do we care whether we are able to react or not, act, withdraw reaction or not? Because for spiritual life, our vision has to be clear, the channel has to be straight, we must not encumber ourselves with unnecessary obstacles. Women must not cover and cloud the doors of perception. You see, if I am not able to withdraw my mind when it's necessary to do so, My ability to pick up on the impulse of the moment, my ability to perceive the right and the wrong, the do and the don't of every moment becomes clouded, covered with ignorance. The doors of perception is a phrase that Aldous Huxley used in writing his famous book. It's a very good, uh, very good uh, analogy or simile, figure of speech. If the doors are encumbered, if they're clouded by adverse, unfavorable, unspiritual feelings, sentiments, reactions... How can we have a clear channel to the truth? How can we move forward, upward, in our spiritual life? I'd like to use the illustration for you of a, of a backyard swimming pool. Now, I have been up in an airplane, and I have seen Hollywood from the air, and I know that this is one of the areas of the world where there are more swimming pools than all things else. I am amazed at the number of pools that you can see from an airplane over Hollywood. Los Angeles. Well, so that's why I want to use this illustration of a backyard pool. Now, imagine one of those fancy pools where a light has been buried in the floor, well insulated from the water. And this light is shining up for the swimmers to enjoy. There are two kinds, there are two ways in which that light could be obscured. What are they? One of them would be through contamination of the water. If the water is full of dirt, sediment, leaves, rotten leaves, all kinds of things that have fallen into the pool and it's not been cleaned, the light will be obscured, very obviously. Another way that you won't be able to see the light, especially if you're standing up above the pool, 
is if a wind has come along and rippled the water. These are the two kinds of impurities which the pool sustains and allows no clear vision of the light. If we want clear vision of the light, we too have to put our mind into a state which is free from these obstructions. Using the principle of the gunas, as you know that familiar term, you must know those familiar terms, the gunas in the Vedanta are tamas, rajas, and sattva. And the obstruction of sediment and impurity in the mind comes from tamas. The obstruction, the obstruction of restlessness, the waves that obscure the light, comes from rajas. And here the light stands for sattva. How can we ever attain the sattvic condition of our mind and body and heart that we want to have for spiritual life unless we clear out from below the sediment of Thomas and the fickleness of Raja. That's what we have to do to get clear vision. What is the what are the um, sediments in the mind? Oh, you know, old memories, trying to recapture past lives, the filth that has accumulated from things we haven't let go of. And what is, what, of what consists the restlessness of the mind, personal ambition, undue emphasis on the ego, plans for the future, forgetting that the future is in God's hands, the constant exercising of the power to do, These have to be overcome before we can get to the light and see the light of the Atman, the self which lies within. And the qualities which take us closest to the Atman are those of purity, balance, fairness, equity. Without getting rid of the obstacles, we can never be able to attain a mind which is filled with these qualities. And these qualities lead us to truth. We have to keep the balance of mind at all times in our lives in order to perceive the light which is deep within us. I think you've heard that many times. 
Every one of us has within himself or herself the light of the Atman, the self, who we truly are. Every one of us at core is a shining light of intelligence, spirit, of truth, of beauty, of chit, consciousness, ananda, bliss. Just think of that. At the core of your being, to which you can revert if you know how, lies this wonderful being whom we all the time choose to ignore. Well, Vedantic teaching describes the three kinds of adversities that we have in life. They have long Sanskrit names, which I won't bother you with this morning, but you can understand what they are easily. The difficulties and adversities which come to us from the heavens, lightning, thunder, tsunami, the natural disasters over which we have no control. This is one kind of, of disaster we have to face. And the second one is, of course, the kind of trouble and disaster that comes from the rest of the world, people, holocaust, war, invasion, other people's colds that we catch. And the third one is the one, the dangerous one, the one that comes from inside. From inside of us, the problems we put upon ourselves by our own false choices, our ignorant nature interfering with the light of the void, the clear light, the light of the void, this thought. See how different our reactions must be. Uh, I was once in a uh, t- taking care of a of a uh, class of college students. They were in my council for a while in uh, Atlanta, where I came from, and I asked them, "Why do you suppose it is that when the tsunami came?" or 9-11, everyone was enraged, rather. When 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 9-11 occurred, everyone was enraged. But when the tsunami came, nobody was enraged. They were just desperate in despair. And, of course, the answer that I got from the students was simple. One was man-made and one was God-made. Yeah, but but the trouble is 
Doesn't God operate through man? Can you make such a distinction as to say, ultimately, to say that God was not responsible for 9-11? I put that question before them. I don't know how you will feel about it. You might want to go home and think about that. What is your idea of God? Anyway, our lives are constantly threatened by these types of disasters, and our reactions to them are different according to the type of disaster that it is, as I have pointed out to you. One may enrage us, and we may seek uh, revenge, and we may start a war, and so on. And another may simply distress us and say, help make us say that there is no respite for that. But the ones that we have to take care of today are the ones which come up with inside of us. Our lives are constantly threatened by all of these. They never run smoothly. And if they, de- if they ran smoothly, you wouldn't like it. You know, we cultivate trouble. Yes, we actually do. We cultivate trouble. I had a friend who said, the problem for me today is that I have no problem. (laughs) We cultivate problems because we like to be disturbed. Why do we like to be disturbed? Because it exercises our powers of intellect, capacity to grow spiritually, to rise above, to surmount, to transcend the difficulties. By the way, do you know that problems are never solved on the level of the problem? They're only solved by rising above the problem. Problems are solved on a different level from where we try to meet them. We never really solve a problem. We transcend it by reacting properly. If you didn't have problems, you'd probably be running around saying, oh, I'm bored. Let me get into some kind of trouble. Oh, yes, it happens like that. When we are overreactive, we are bound both by pain and pleasure. Bound by pleasure? Yeah, bound by pleasure. When the mind is reacting and is in an unsettled state, we hardly know what to do. But where we have to start is with those very subtle, tiny little thoughts and reactions. Even conditioned reflexes, which burrow into the mind and upset it and put it into the wrong vibration. If you accept pleasure, Be sure that pain will come. 
You know that wonderful book, The Prophet? My spiritual life began with The Prophet. And in that book, Gibran tells us, if you are dancing with pleasure, you may be sure pain is waiting for you on your bed. The very wise, wise man, wise book, the prophet, What harm is done when we react in unfavorable and unwanted ways? Well, I mentioned that. To be more detailed about it, such reactions almost always are impulsive. They show our lack of control, our lack of self-mastery, our animalistic tendencies and behaviors, So if we are to rise above the animal level, we know we have a job to do. In his definition of instinct, Swami Vivekananda made some very significant pronouncements. He said, instinct, one of the things he said, instinct is past reactions which have become automatic. It's quite common for psychologists today and for a long time to talk about human instinct, human instinct and animal instinct. But instinct is made up of the reactions of many past lives. In the course of our passing through the round of life, birth and death, we accumulate habits. An old adage has it in India, Form a habit, make an act, and form a habit. Have a habit and reap a character. Our character is made from the sum total of our habits, and our habits are acquired by our repeated reactions. So instinct is nothing but past reactions which have become automatic. He talked about the duck going to the water. As soon as it's born, it's hatched on land. The egg is hatched on land, and the duck immediately runs to the water, nearby water. And so the reactions that we uh, have to all of our difficulties and problems must not be harmful. In the course of reaction, right action can be prevented. I'll tell you a story about it. Um, We, you see, we become blinded 
We can't see the truth. Through impulse and irritation, we may damage the whole situation. By superimposing the past on the present and superimposing the present on the future, the effect may not be, aware, be, aware, may not be worn off and I may not be able to perceive exactly what I want to see. I'll give you this example. A businessman had sent his uh, agent, one of his employees, to get a, to secure an important contract. And um, it was in a distant city. In those days, there was no email. And there were uh, letters were written. And so he received, in a few days, a letter from the agent, which started out like this. I'm sorry, but I did just exactly the opposite of what you told me to do, to get the contract. And the boss flew into a rage, the letter went into the air, and he fumed and fretted fired off a telegram to the agent. You're fired, practically saying you're fired. And then, he, of course, he proceeded to read the rest of the letter. And it said, it said, in order to secure the contract, I had to operate in a completely different way from what you told me, but I did do it, and we have got the contract. <clears throat> in our hurry, in our emotional involvement, in what happens to us, in the mental set that we create as a result of our experience, we damage, severely damage the mind, make it unfit to perceive right from wrong, the balance of opposites, and the way to proceed to our future. Well, so how now do we practice, how do we practice non-reaction? Let's assume that the environment is given <clears throat> and we are not responsible for it. Of course, you know there is a Vedantic view. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, all of the kinds of Vedanta that there are. There is a Vedantic view that we are responsible for everything. It's called uh, in Sanskrit drishti uh, srishtivara, which means the doctrine that we are we have projected this universe and everything in it from out of our own selves. But we're not going to take that tack today. I won't burden you with that <laughs> that uh, responsibility today. Let's take it for granted that we're not responsible for the reaction for the uh, environment that comes to us. So what do I do? I have to take up the practice of yoga. Yoga. Not hotter yoga, higher yoga. Yoga is the practice 
of controlling the mind, giving it appropriate responses and reactions. And through the practice of yoga, this charioteer becomes expert. Suppose somebody says, oh, that dreadful woman, she exposed me in front of my friends. She knew something about my past. And in front of my friends, she exposed me. I'm going to get even with her. (laughs) You see, the thinking, the feeling, the action which may result, perhaps even slapping somebody's face, all of that comes from the inability to say, hold on. So what do we have to do to prevent prevent adverse and unwanted reactions is to watch carefully our impulses, lower our sails, post gale warnings, Our nerves are like high-voltage wires. I have a quotation I'd like to read to you from a book that you may perhaps know pretty well. This is from Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. I beg your pardon. It's from his second book, The New Earth. Tolle is one of our modern pundits. I hope you have read The Power of Now, because I think it's very much like Vedanta in American language. This is what he says about reaction. When someone criticizes you, blames you, or calls you names... Instead of immediately retaliating or defending yourself, do nothing. Allow the self-image to remain diminished and become alert to what feels like deep inside you, what that feels like deep inside you. Allow the self-image you have to become alert and remain diminished and become alert to what that feels like deep inside you. For a few seconds, it may feel uncomfortable, as if you had shrunk in size. Then, you may sense an inner spaciousness that feels intensely alive. We would say he is, or she is contacting the Atman. You haven't been diminished at all. No, indeed. In fact, you have expanded You may then come to the amazing realization that when you are seemingly diminished in some way and remain in absolute non-reaction, not just externally but internally also, you realize that nothing real has been diminished. In fact, you undergo an expansion and make room for being, being with a capital B, the power to be, to come forward. 
This is what Jesus meant when he said, turn the other cheek. Well, for years and years, I have wondered what Jesus meant by turning the other cheek. And I tried very hard to be a total pacifist for many years. But you see, it isn't that you get you become smaller. It's that you become larger by using the power to resist reaction. <clears throat> well, taking the name of God, Japa, meditation, and the spiritual practices which we recommend to you in Vedanta accomplish the same purpose. They are forms of yoga. The strange phenomenon of lucid dreaming provides another good illustration. You know that in a, in, in a dream, when you are somewhat in control, many dreams we're not in control, the waking ego is not in control, but when sometimes it begins to be so, you realize that if you fall from a mountain cliff in a dream, you are able to slowly come down and land on two feet. <laughs> or when you are swimming underwater and the uh, doesn't seem to be any place to come up, you don't die, and so on. The ability of the mind to control actions and reactions, if it can be demonstrated even in dream, can it not be demonstrated in daily life, waking life? Just think about this. <clears throat> As babies, we're seeing the world upside down. Every one of us, as a child, as a baby, not a child, as a baby, has had to learn to invert the picture on the retina. This world is seen upside down. Your brain turns it upside down. You see your brain. Your brain turns it right side up. Call it brain, call it mind. If we can do that, can we not interrupt an adverse reaction? How fast it happens. In nanoseconds it happens. This picture of the world in front of us is turned right side up. We see it this way. If we can do that, just think what we're capable what we're capable of <clears throat> I tell you a story about what happened to me in London I was having dinner at the table I was in the London center the downtown center I was having dinner at the table when the doorbell rang and uh, we had at that time a bookshop and, of course, it was a book customer. And 
we didn't ordinarily have the book open, bookshop open at that time, but the abbot expected me to go. And my food was lying there on the table, and I went to answer the door and to take care of this book sale. And all the time that I was selling this customer the book, I kept thinking, my food is getting cold, my food is getting cold. When will I get back to my dinner? And do you think that I could treat him like a human being? Did I, did I give him the full complement of my attention that I should have been giving him? No, I couldn't. And then afterwards, you see, I realized how unspiritual it was that I should be constantly thinking about my food and its pleasantness while waiting on somebody who wanted to buy a holy book. After all, where there were microwave, there was a microwave in those days. I could put it back in the microwave. I could eat after the rest had finished. This is a pretty good example of what happens when we react in the wrong way. We'd never get peace of mind without strength of mind. So watch out for resentment. Its nature is the clue to our ego. What is it that you resent? The picture of your resentment is the picture of our ego. The picture of our resentments shows us the outline, the profile of our ego. Sri Ramakrishna's uh, widow, holy mother, used to say that our sanskaras, our past impressions, had been wound around a spool like threads on a spool. When we go to meditate, those threads start to unravel when we see those things. We wonder why we have such bad impressions when we start to meditate. Well, those sanskaras are unwinding. So why don't I talk more about positive reactions? Well, first we have to learn not to react negatively. Then we learn to react creatively. This story I'll give you from the Reader's Digest. Please excuse me. I borrowed, from, borrowed it from the Reader's Digest of years ago. A lady had stalled her car <clears throat> on the road. In those days, calls stars, cars stalled more often. They do now. And a young man in a roadster behind her was um, honking the horn. She just couldn't get it started. Finally, she got up and came out of the car, came back to his car and said to him, Young man, 
Would you mind trying to start my car while I sit in yours and blow the horn? (laughs) We laugh, but you see how creative it was. See the creativity in it. The cleverness of turning it into something gentle and humorous. She could so easily have reacted in other ways. She could have got angry and got out and cussed him out, made a big scene. Or she could have been a wimp and sat still, done nothing, reacted in a very negative way. But she had the courage and the intelligence to make it something creative and funny. There is an ideal to set before yourself. If you can react in adversity the way she reacted, you have got it made. I don't know if you know George Bernard Shaw. You must know the story of George Bernard. It's a pretty old story, but it such, shows such a plum. A famous actress was attracted to him, to his intellect. And she wrote to him, describing herself and making a proposal. Wouldn't it be, we should get together, <laughs> we should get together. Because if we were to have a child, just think what it would be with my beautiful body and your brain. And he wrote back and said, yes, madam, but what if the child had my body and your brain? The art of (laughs) non-reaction. Such a plum, hmm? such humility, humility in Shaw. Well, Swami Vivekananda called this world a gymnasium where we come to tumble. We don't come to exercise, we come to tumble. Yes, ultimately, yes. Before you can tumble successfully, truly tumble, bump around, fall over each other, you have to exercise the greatest care, make every muscle obey. It's the great who have practiced the exercise of reaction and non-reaction who learn to tumble and have fun. Clowns tumbling here. At Trabuco, where I live now, we have a couple of dogs. Their names are Maya and Sadhu. (laughs) And they pretend to fight. (laughs) Every morning they go out and have a terrible fight snarling, biting, poking, stepping on each other. 
You think they're just going to tear each other apart. And then a few minutes later, they're licking each other's cheeks. <laughs> well, what we need to do is to find the best middle path between over-aggression and over-submission. Like the lady in the car, you remember Sri Ramakrishna's story about hissing but not biting, the snake who was told, stop biting, and he didn't do anything, and he almost died. And then the boys threw stones at him and almost killed him. And then his guru told him, I didn't tell you not to hiss. I told you not to bite, but I didn't tell you not to hiss. Self-defense is legitimate. We have to defend ourselves. Well, back to the lady who complained of being exposed to her friends. In a high state of spiritual consciousness, we may not even be aware of being betrayed. At this stage, you do not see other people as people. You see them as embodiments of the divine principle. There's no question of reaction, no need to convert to ever a reaction. You see the consciousness behind the face. You see that pure consciousness which shines behind the face of every one of our fellow beings. And when you see that, when you have got that, when you feel that, you know that, questions of reaction, non-reaction really don't arise. If I feel that I am one with you, what can you do to me? What can I do to you? I'll give you another quote in closing from Eckhart Tolle. Here are some ways in which people unconsciously try to emphasize their form identity, their ego patterns. Demanding recognition for something you did and getting angry or upset if you don't get it. Trying to get attention by talking about your problems, the story of your illnesses, or making a scene. Giving your opinion when nobody's asked for it. <laughs> and it makes no difference to the situation. Being more concerned <clears throat> with how the other person sees you than with the other person. Which is to say, using other people for egoic reflection or as ego enhancers. <clears throat> Trying to make an impression on others through possessions, knowledge, good looks, status, physical strength, and so on. Bringing about temporary ego inflations through angry reaction against something or someone taking things personally, feeling offended, 
wanting to be seen or to appear important. So, you see, in order not to appear important, I have to close this lecture. Shanti, Antariksham Shanti, Prithivi Shanti, Apo Shanti, Aushadhaya Shanti, Vanaspataya Shanti, Brahma Shanti, Sarvam Shanti, Shanti Reva Shanti Same Shanti Revi Om Shanti 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 Peace is in outer space. Peace is in the sky, on the earth, and in the waters. The herbs, the plants, and the trees are all full of peace. The gods are peaceful. Everything in the universe is pervaded by peace. May this infinite universal peace prevail throughout our being. Om, peace, peace. Peace be unto us all.